The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Teresa Martin. She is a fellow registered dietitian. She's based in Bend, Oregon, and has over 28 years of experience in the field of nutrition, including clinical and community nutrition, diabetes research, and most currently as clinical educator for Novo Nordisk. Over the last 15 years, Ms. Martin has specialized in the field of diabetes, and as a certified diabetes educator, she helps individuals with diabetes gain the skills they need to take control of their illness so they can live the life they want to live, and she helps healthcare professionals get the resources and training that we need to provide quality, compassionate diabetes care. Ms. Martin was recently recognized by the American Association of Diabetes Educators for her work when she received the Diabetes Educator of the Year Award in 2017. She provides multiple lectures on the topic of the microbiome and its role in diabetes and other chronic disease prevention. I heard her speak on this subject most recently in Washington, D.C. at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting, and I knew I wanted to bring her voice to our listeners. So welcome, Teresa. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me as a guest. Well, your talk was really one of the most outstanding presentations at our dietetics conference because I think there's so much interest right now in the microbiome and you made it so manageable and understandable and exciting. So tell me, how did you become interested in the microbiome? Well, I think it's kind of funny when I think about it. About 25 years ago, I was asked to do a talk on probiotics and prebiotics, and I was living out in Boston. And I looked up, I went to a place called a library, and I looked up a paper articles, and there was about five articles that I gave a lecture on. And probably about six years ago, the Wade, which is the Washington Association of Diabetes Educators, asked if I'd be willing to give a talk on the microbiome. And I thought, oh, that would be great. And so then I went to pull up the articles, and it was like over 25,000 articles that yeah. were out there. And it really got me interested in, wow, what has changed over the last 20 to 25 years in this topic. And the more I dove deep into it, the more I realized that it was kind of the connection between us and our environment. And it really explained all those little questions that I had as a dietitian, saying, why is it one person can go on a low-fiber or high-fiber diet and lose weight? And another person goes on a low-fat diet and lose weight and another person gain weight? And why is one medication do one thing to one person and another to another? And so it just really sparked my interest that this is an area I need to dive deeper into. So it was being asked to speak on it that got me to dive deeper into it. And then I've been a little obsessed with it over the last six years of just trying to stay up to date. So I've been doing little microbiome updates at all my local organizations here in Oregon and Washington. Well, I think that you made it so understandable. And you also recognize that it is such a complex field and we're really at the tip of the iceberg on it. But I do think, as you do, that it's really the new frontier in understanding how we do interact with our environment. 
So we should probably start with an understanding of the terminology, and I think there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding there. So why don't we just start with a brief explanation of what is the microbiome and what is the microbiota? Yeah, so if you think about the microbes that are out there in the world, they're everywhere. They're in the air, the water, our soil, on our skin, they're everywhere. So as we look at these microbes, they're just like little plants, but they're living organisms that are unique to their environment. So if we say a microbiota, we're talking about a group of microbes that live in a specific environment. So the ocean microbiota would be quite different than the microbes that live in the desert. And then that's the same with our body. So you can have the microbes in your nose are very different than the microbes that are living in your mouth and in your gut. And in fact, the microbes in your mouth are so diverse from those that live in your gut, it would be like grabbing a sample from Florida and comparing it to here in Oregon or somewhere in another continent. So what separates thousands and thousands of miles on Earth is just separated by a few feet in our body with a completely different microbial makeup. So the microbiota specifically explains the group of microbes living in a specific environment. And then sometimes you'll hear the word microbiome, which is basically all the genes that are expressed in those microbes in that particular area. So if you were to look at a room full of people, the microbiota would be all the different people, whether they're from America or China or Africa. But then if you looked at all the genetic material inside those people, that would be like the microbiome. And that's where it gets really exciting because that's where all the diversity and differences occur in humans. Exactly. Okay, so this is our new frontier in health and medicine. And I love the way you described, you know, when we have a bowel movement, basically, it's a huge data dump, because we are excreting so much information about ourselves and even about what we just ate. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what makes a healthy gut microbiota. Because It seems to me that of all the different areas where there are different microorganisms in the body, mouth, nose, gut, it's the gut that we seem to be most focused on. So if we want to make sure that we have the healthiest gut organisms in our body, what do we need to do? Yeah, I always joke with people to go back and be born vaginally. (laughs) Yes. Like be born again. But it starts from the way we're born. And so you think of the one consistency right now that I've seen across all the research is that we don't have all the answers about the microbiota yet, but we do know that those people that look healthy, those people that stay healthy throughout a lifetime, that their microbiota is very diverse, very large in quantity, so lots of mass of these little microbes in the gut, and also very resilient. So if something happened, like you had to go on an antibiotic, which kills off large, large quantities of our microbes, that we recover very quickly. And so those are the three things that we look at. So anything that causes diversity, anything that causes increased mass, or anything that causes or leads to resilience, we say is healthy for our gut microbiome, or healthy for our gut microbiota. And so if you look at just the way we're born, somebody that's born vaginally is what we say is kind of inoculated into the world. They get all of their mother's microbes right through the birthing process. They're breathing it in, they're swallowing it. It's in their eyes, their ears, their skin, where someone who's C-sectioned into the world is in a very sterile environment. They miss that complete inoculation to get all that diversity right from the get-go. 
So we can see people who are born vaginally versus C-sectioned, they're less likely to get things like diabetes and obesity and high blood pressure and food allergies because they get all that diversity right from the beginning. Mm, So fascinating. It is. Like I said, I just... When I start talking about this topic, I'm like, this is so exciting. I always expect people to start standing up and cheering (laughs) right? because it's so amazing. But yeah, so after your vaginal birth, babies that are breastfed. So in breast milk, there's about 500 different microbes in the breast milk. Again, giving that child the immunity of the mother and helping that child get more diversity and more mass. And then there's also interesting things in the breast milk that are non-digestible fibers that we as humans can't process, but these little microbes can. So literally the breast milk is giving the baby additional microbes and fuel for those little microbes that they're getting so that they're very, very healthy. And from there, just a child that plays outside and plays in the dirt, we know that kids that grow up with dogs have more diversity. They're less likely to get things like asthma and food allergies. We know that kids that haven't been exposed to antibiotics at a very young age, like up to the age of three, if they had very few antibiotics, that increases the diversity. And then eating lots and lots of fruits and vegetables and whole foods and unprocessed foods, which is probably the one that we can link the most to, is that's the one you have the most power over. You can't go back and be born vaginally or breastfed, but you can increase the quantity of fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we've, even, we've seen the link between stress and sleep and where you live, and how much time you spend outside, how many people you interact with as a child. I mean, the list goes on and on, but really right now as adults, the things we have most control over is exercise, relaxation, and our diets, and Mm -hmm. limiting our exposure to the toxins that really kill off those microbes. Yeah, I was thinking when you were talking about things that our culture and our society For example, my own children, and perhaps this was your case as well, but women go back to work relatively quickly in the United States. And so my own child who went to daycare seemed like he was always getting ear infections and was on antibiotics. And I think about all the kids in similar situations who are in a daycare situation where they are getting sick and the doctor prescribes antibiotics within those first three years of life. And then there's also the mother's diet and the mother's stress and how that is influencing perhaps her own breast milk. So there are so many factors that are working against us in our own culture that would lead to the increases, I think, in some of the illnesses that we're seeing today. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think it's such a complex puzzle when we look at, you know, why is obesity rising and diabetes and all these things that we used to not see and you still don't see in the third world countries and you're not seeing these big rapid rises in the same kind of problems that we're seeing here in the United States with uh, obesity and diabetes. And it just I think it's a piece of the puzzle that we haven't really looked at yet when we say, okay, let's put this food additive in this food and it looks like it's safe because in animals it doesn't cause cancer or an immediate toxicity. And yet we've never looked at how that food additive affects our microbiome because we didn't have the capacity 10 or 15 years ago even to look at the detail of our microbiome as we do now. Right. We can't even study it. So. Exactly. And I thought it was really interesting the way you showed. I thought it's so important for people, I think, to understand the vital role of our intestines, of our gut. And you showed how 
plant fibers in particular, you know, the recommendation to eat fiber, eat lots of whole grains, fruits and vegetables, and why that's important. So these microbes produce short-chain fatty acids, which help to develop this nice, thick, juicy mucous membrane, as you described. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So humans don't have any genetic material to digest fiber. So when we eat something like an apple or nuts or whole grains, the fiber that's in that food, we simply cannot break it down. So it goes through our stomach and our small intestine and gets into the large intestine, and that's where the majority of the microbes live, and they thrive on that. So when they eat that fiber, they ferment it and create, like what you said, that short-chain fatty acid. And that short-chain fatty acid has a whole bunch of different things that it does for us. One, it creates a mucosal membrane on the inside of the gut. And that not only creates a barrier for toxins, like say you ate something like salmonella or you had a carcinogen like like moldy peanuts and burnt meat, those things are very carcinogenic. They can't get through that mucous membrane. They actually will go right through undigested and and end up in the toilet where they belong. So that short-chain fatty acid creates the mucous membrane, which is incredibly healthy to keep the bad stuff out and let the good stuff in. And then these short-chain fatty acids do all sorts of other things, such as help us produce hormones after we eat that tell us when to produce things like insulin or when to feel full or what types of foods we might eat. So it's not only protective, but also plays a role in our hormone regulation after we eat as well. And even if you go one step further from that, it plays a role in some of the brain chemicals that are released after we eat. So you think of things like dopamine and serotonin and all these hormones you think about that keep us happy and calm or give us cravings, <laughs> or make us want to eat more chocolate or more sugar. All those things come from the production of the side effects of these little microbes eating our fiber. That made sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like the microbes are really in control, <laughs> and we only like to think we are. I- yeah, I've, I've often heard them say that we think that we're the host for the microbes, but really it might be the other way. Exactly. They're the ones pretty much keeping us alive and determining how we digest our food and how many calories we're going to get and whether we're healthy. And yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Let me take one break because we're at the halfway mark. And I want to remind everyone that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. And our guest today is Ms. Teresa Martin, fellow registered dietitian based in Bend, Oregon, who has expertise in diabetes education and the microbiome. Well, I think that when we talk about health too, when I start thinking about mental health, I think you made it very clear in your talk that it's not just physical illness, whether it's acute or chronic, but also how we feel is so connected to the microbiota or the specific microorganisms in the gut. And I know that there's been a lot of talk about leaky gut, and I worry about people who have decided to not eat certain foods because maybe it's for weight control, or even, you know, as a diabetes educator, we see people who are adamant followers of ketogenic diets, which tend to be high in fat. Yes, vegetables are included, but I wonder if we can still reach the levels of fiber that you recommend as a therapeutic amount. And then we've got people who are just reducing or restricting grains, because maybe they read a popular book, or they think that they they say they feel better when they don't eat certain grains. How do you make sense of this soup of dietary following out there? 
Yeah, it's a tough one. I've kind of boiled it all down to this idea that there's certain recommendations around the world that we have all finally come to an agreement on. And this idea of a plant-based diet. I don't think there's anybody out there that would argue that broccoli is healthy for you. I've never seen an anti-broccoli diet. Right. (laughs) There are some pros, and I think I've heard people fight over beans, which is the ketogenic type diet or the paleo diet. I'm sorry, they tell you that you shouldn't eat beans. So what I really boil it down to is kind of thinking about the very simple process of the idea that foods our body knows what to do with. Anytime we take that food and we process it in any way, we add something to it, we take something out of it, we grind it down, we pulverize it, it's going to change the impact on our microbial world, which is thriving on those little microbes. And so I kind of look, kind of backing up one second, I kind of look at it as a belief system versus science. So if I have somebody come to me that's Jewish and says they can't eat shrimp or pork, I don't start arguing with them over why they don't eat shrimp or pork. I work with them and say, okay, those are two things you don't want to eat because off of your belief system, we can still create a very healthy diet without those two things in your diet. So I kind of go the same approach with people that come to me and say, hey, I've lost 30 pounds on the ketogenic diet. It's the best I've ever felt in my life. I don't go to them and tell them that the ketogenic diet is not based off of any health claims. It was based off of preventing seizures back in the 1920s. And by going on a ketogenic diet, you're missing massive nutrients and start arguing with them. They have a belief system. And so I say, I can work with you with that belief system that you believe the ketogenic diet is beneficial to you. But let's tweak it enough to make sure you're not starving your microbial world, which we now have so much evidence is impacting your health. And are you willing to work with me? Or somebody that's on the paleo diet, same thing. So I always try to look at the belief versus the science. If you want to start arguing science with me, how we can have a heyday with that. But I really try to respect people's belief systems, especially if they've made a a really good effort to lose weight and they've chosen one of these kind of non-evidence-based diets like the paleo diet or the Atkins diet and to say, "I'm I'm going to choose this diet and work with it. I try to really say, congratulations, you've made a huge effort to change your diet most likely what has led to the weight loss is getting rid of these processed foods. Mm -hmm. Um, The paleo diet, I mean, the number one thing is get rid of processed foods. You're losing weight and feeling better not because it's paleolithic, which it's not. It's because it's not processed. And when we look at the microbial world, that's exactly what the microbes want. They need that fiber. They don't do well with all these emulsifiers and sugar substitutes and additives and hydrogenated fats. The microbes that need and process those types of foods and additives are very unhealthy for us. And the microbes that process all the whole foods, like the nuts and the seeds and the fruits and the berries, they produce all sorts of byproducts that keep us healthy and thriving and feeling good and making all the happy hormones in our brain. And we can think and sleep and thrive as a human and be the best that we can be. So I'm not sure if that exactly (laughs) answered your question, but I I simply try to work with people's beliefs by trying to get them to eat more whole foods. Right. Um, the best that they possibly can. And I think that's a really respectful way to talk about food and nutrition. I think it's so much more encompassing. I also like to look at blue zones where people have the most longevity. And I think, okay, what did they eat? What is their lifestyle like? And then also, what about our own ancestral diets? You know, what did our grandparents and great-grandparents eat before we were? I think you had a slide that showed 
don't become like a prisoner of the food industry <laughs> because yeah. we, you know, we don't need all this processed food in our world. Yeah, I definitely, I think I, I hear my own kids saying it, you know, when they say I'm hungry, there's nothing to eat because it would require peeling or cutting. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so we're very programmed right now to believe that cooking at home takes longer and is more expensive than grabbing fast food. And there's some great studies out there that show that the cost of processed food is actually higher than the, the cost of non-processed food. And I think if I recall correctly, it was something like about 30 cents per serving for whole foods versus about 70 cents per serving for processed foods at a grocery store. And they just went through and went like a potato versus um, instant potatoes, um, whole rice versus instant rice. Just looking at those little things that you might save 15 minutes, but it actually is costing you more and it's taking out all the things that feed your, your healthy microbiome. There's another really great study, if any listeners want to look it up, and it was actually funded by the Gates Foundation. It's the, the Global Burden of Disease Study. Mm-hmm. And this is where they looked all around the world at the top causes of, of early death, kind of premature death. And they found that basically when you look at all these top 10 causes of death, which is heart disease and stroke and respiratory infection and diabetes, 9 out of 10 were related to microbes. There was only one that wasn't related to microbes. And when they looked at all the causes of those top 10 deaths, diet was number one for the industrial world. Right. So it was number one killer is diet, not just in the United States, but across the world. And then when they looked at, well, what constitutes a diet that would kill you prematurely? And they said it's looking at the foods that we need to keep us healthy versus the foods that are causing illness. And so they made a very simple list of the foods we need, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, beans, fiber, omega-3s. And they said it's, it's missing those and that it's too much of red meat, processed meat, added sugar, sugar-sweetened beverages, trans fats, and salt. And when you look at that, that's a whole world, looking at the world. I think those basic concepts that we're not arguing over is added sugar bad anymore. We're not arguing over is processed food bad anymore. And so I think that, that kind of that basics of, of if anyone wants to look at that world study, it's, it's very interesting what they found. Right. And as you were saying earlier, going back and looking at all of the recommendations that are universal, you showed the MIND diet, the diabetes educators recommendations, the U.S. dietary guidelines, and finding all of those pieces that are similar and running with those. I think that's really good advice. I pulled out one of your slides. You have uh, studies have shown all of the following things that can limit or damage our microbial ecosystem. And of course, you mentioned some of those. I want to also pull out polystyrene microplastics. Yeah, isn't that crazy? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think about how often do we go somewhere, maybe we're getting our car fixed, and there's a styrofoam cup right there, you know, have some coffee, or you have a to-go dinner that comes in styrofoam. So these kinds of plastics are also ubiquitous in our environment, and maybe we should be paying a little more attention to packaging, too. Yeah, I heard even the crazy thing of throwing your contacts in the toilet. (laughs) That increases those in our water because they're so small, they don't they actually get shredded through the filtering system and end up back in our water. So wow. don't throw your contacts in the toilet. Yeah. I was, when I read that one, I was like, what? I also think you can make yourself crazy when you start reading it. It's like, oh, my gosh, I should just 
live on a farm and not communicate to the rest of the world and (laughs) quit my job. And I think the idea is our world is changing. We have to figure out how what we do is impacting the world. And even, you know, having a, a reusable mug you're not using a styrofoam cup. All these little things make a difference. But, I mean, there's days I've left the house and I forgot my mug. And instead of feeling guilty and I'm going to ruin the environment, it's we're all human. If we're making a little step each day, even if it's one small step, it does make a difference. As a whole global effect, we can make a difference. Every little thing, every little choice we make makes a difference. Absolutely. And I also loved that you spoke about, well, I'm just going to summarize because we just have a few minutes left, but you also spoke about including more fermented foods. These are the probiotics into our diet, choosing organic foods that don't have high residues of herbicides and pesticides, intermittent fasting being beneficial for the microbes. And I also want to address the issue of fiber and how much is enough. You actually said, and I wrote this down, I was really interested in the number, and you said that more than 50 grams per day may even be therapeutic. Yeah. When we think of our diet as a treatment for something, or maybe you've lived a life of a fiberless diet, or you were foreign C-section, and there's no going back now, but this idea in most of the research, it looks like it's maybe 35 to 50 grams per day is what we really truly, that's when we start to see microbial changes to the positive. And so the recommendation right now is like 25 to 30 for most people or even up to 35 grams. And that may just not be enough to really fuel and create that diversity and mass that we're looking for. And we're talking with food too. The supplements do work, but they're very limited. When you eat like you know, Metamucil or something like that, you're just getting one little fiber. When you eat an apple or you have nuts, you're getting multiple types of fiber, plus you're getting the microbes that live on that food. So you're getting both. But yeah, it is a little bit astonishing. The average intake right now, I think, is around 5 to 10 is what most adults are consuming in America. And so jumping from 10 to 50, you would not like me very much if you you did that in one day. You'd be bloated and gassy and just feel awful. So it is a gradual increase. I always encourage people to see their local dietitian so they could kind of gradually work up, maybe add five grams per week and then see how you feel. Those microbes take a little while to shift gears and to start growing. The microbes that digest fiber just don't multiply overnight. They take a little bit of time and then they start multiplying. And if you keep feeding them, the good ones start growing, just like a garden. You're giving them all those nutrients that they need to grow and flourish so they can protect you and give you all the stuff you need to stay healthy. I always tell my kids, what have you done good for your microbiome today? Yeah, that's great. That's what we should teach in kindergarten, right? Yes, exactly. We just have like a few seconds left. Do you have any last words or messages for our listeners? Yes, I think my final point of the day would be no matter how small it is, try to think about your microbiome every day. So if you can eat just one apple or one carrot or go outside for 10 minutes, but anything you can do to help fuel that healthy microbe, no matter how small, before you make a decision, think what impact will this have on that lovely microbial world that's living inside of me? Well, that's fantastic. We are going to have to have you come back and talk about some of your final tips. Yeah, I think you developed some 10 great tips for a healthy microbiome and dive a little bit deeper into how 
the microbiome even affects chronic diseases such as diabetes. But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Teresa Martin, fellow registered dietitian. She is a certified diabetes educator and expert on the microbiome and chronic and acute diseases. Thank you so much, Ms. Martin, for being my guest. And we'll make sure to have a link to the National Institutes of Health Microbiome and Human Gut Project for future research. Thank you very much. Thank you.